0: Welcome to the One Corner at a Time podcast. I am the host, Zachary Lathan Williams. I have the pleasure of having a conversation with my former teacher. I call him Sensei, John Pajot. It's weird to say John, by the way. Like, I'm going to call you either Mr. Pajot or Pajot. Like, it's weird. That's fine. That's fine.
1: I, I think if I ran into my teachers from you know, twenty five years ago, I, I'd still, I'd still be, it'd be Mr. Quillen. You know?
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, man. Pleasure to have you. Um, I want, I guess, the first question I want to ask you: What is, what is your inspiration for your creativity for your work as a teacher in MPS? What is, what is the inspiration? Well, for for my work
1: in MPS, I can, I can answer that because I've had time to think about it and, and why. And I think it's, it has a lot to do with the idea that, I think I was very lucky growing up um, you know in Milwaukee with my family who uh, you know you go back a couple of generations to my grandparents my grandma grew up in a you know a, on a farmhouse with a dirt floor and right. you know no connectivity no electricity and you know you go through a couple more generations and my brother and I were the first from our family to go to college and I felt that part of that you know that I The Milwaukee community provided for my family, allowed us opportunities to develop and grow, and I thought that it's important to give back to that community, you know, that you you came from it and you gotta honor that and say, hey, I wanna give something back. So that's really where I look at um, my inspiration for being a teacher about why I decided to do that and why uh, it's it's something that drives me to to keep doing.
0: Absolutely, was there like, a sense of pressure being you and your brother being the only the first people to uh, go to college and your family?
1: Yeah, and for sure. And that has a lot to do with um, my dad didn't have the opportunity to go to college. And he started saving because he decided that he was going to send his kids to college. So he started saving and working uh, as soon as he got out of high school to provide and put money away for that. And that was, I mean, it's crazy that my brother and I both got to get through that, uh, you know, with relatively little money owed, you know, few, very few loans taken out and things like that. So, and and that's, again, that good opportunity from my parents, which was made possible by the community and that feeling that you can't just take that and you can't just take it and run, you know, you you owe something to the people around you.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. You said that you, you felt like a sense of duty to give back. And, um, I could definitely see that, like being a student, man, um, I remember, is your favorite album still The Chronic? I do re- <laughs> love that album. <laughs> yeah, I remember, man, like my first day in AP English, and you said that, I'm like, hold on. You know, it, obviously, you know, you got this, this white guy, man. He's <laughs> Chronic. Like, you got my attention now. But it didn't feel like you was pulling my, my coattail or oh, anything no. like that. Like, it seemed very genuine. It was for real. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so what is the, like, the origins of... For me, I say I have a love of words. And I think there's a psychologist, Heidinger, who says language is the house of truth of the being. And so I have a passion for for words. And I think that was very much honed by you. Um, Do you have, can you trace back to to your love of words or literature in your youth?
1: Yeah, for sure. I remember... um... I mean, I was, I was one of those kids growing up that I was always writing things, you know, either writing uh, scripts, you know, and, and making trying to make little films or, you know, little recordings uh, of stuff, you know, play, even playing with my action figures. Like, I'd write out scripts for my action figures and what <laughs> were they going to say and try, like try to make a little home movie with it. Uh, when I was in probably late grade school, early middle school, I remember I had a friend who we used to, like, team up and write, you know, we had our own... A uh, set of comics that we wrote, and right. you know, we'd draw them out and storyboard them, and then, you know, continue to develop that. And I think that was part of it. And I also grew up in a house where everybody was reading all the time. you know, um my dad and my mom were both readers, so there were, you know, there was there were always books everywhere. and I was sort of, you know, I'd look at that big bookshelf that was in the back of the room and, you know right. think like, oh my God, my dad has read more books than anybody, you know <laughs> and and wanted to conquer those books, uh, you know, as time went on. And then it was the idea of finding, You know, as you said, a love of language, that it wasn't just putting the books away that there were. You started to develop an idea of, you know, a taste in literature, more quality, you know, falling in love with the sound of words and people who really know how to put sentences together. And, you know, and that becomes a doorway to find more and more. You know, I mean, in a way, there's a there's an analogy in music that I see you've got the Coltrane shirt on today. You know, and and looking at that type of thing, I think that opens the doors for in music, in writing. You find people who have a unique phrasing, a unique way of expressing themselves. And and you start to realize that there's more to communication than just saying things. There's there's a structure to it. There's a way to use words that that become doorways into new realities. Mm
0: -hmm. Absolutely. See, I I. um I, I kind of think back to when I was in your class, and I think with creativity, you have two things that that need to intersect in a way, which is the art of it and the science of it, right? And, and speaking of Coltrane, I listened to one of your interviews where you were saying that uh, your your band's music is inspired by like uh, 1970s jazz and rock. So that led me to think about Coltrane in a way. I watched a documentary of his and when he was working on The Love Supreme, um, that that's probably like the the climax of his career, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, it's a great album.
0: Um just just how how just fervent, right, that that desire was to learn about music for him and all different types of music, right? That's like mad scientist type stuff right there. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? And I think with that album, the art, the art of it. And the science intersected perfectly, right? So, um, coming off of just writing my book, I, I wrote you on Facebook in two thousand and nine,
1: I think. Yeah. No, 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 no. Twenty thirteen. Twenty
0: thirteen. Okay. And I said I wanted to write a book, and you gave me a reading list. So after I wrote my book, you know, people were asking what I what am I going to do next. I'm finna get with yeah <laughs> I'm about to look at that reading list, man. So I started reading Zadie Smith on Beauty. That's oh yeah, the first yeah. one. And that's amazing, right? But I really was thinking about you in the sense that um, eight years removed from your class, I'm starting to realize how much of an inspiration you are artistically. And I'm going to tell you why. You're a mad scientist, man. All right. You're a mad scientist and you have the art as well you know like who reads so you're reading 100 years of solitude right which is 483 pages yeah somewhere around there you read the english english language yes and now you're reading the spanish i did narration. i read it in spanish too yeah so so why why is that God, that's mad scientist stuff right there. Okay. why is
1: that well i mean i i guess years ago uh i remember reading something i was reading uh making my way through the through the works of uh, socrates and, or, you know, Plato. And um, the uh, the editor's note, the translator's note said, you know, that, that we've done our best job to, like, bring across this in translation. But if you really want to understand it, you know, you got to read it in Greek. And I thought, okay, challenge accepted. Like, there's something about, because these, these people are masters of, of language, right in, right, in what they're writing. So you take Dante in Italian, um, you take, uh, you know, again, going back to Plato or something in Greek. Uh, looking at um, Garcia Marquez for *100 Years of Solitude* in Spanish, and they're, they're masters of their language. Um, and you can do it in translation. You know, it makes sense, and, and it's there, and it's convenient. But I thought, like, you know, like I said, challenge accepted. Because if at all possible, like, I want to know why they're, what they have in their language, and, right. and it, I think it really has a payoff. I mean, if you have the time and inclination, you know, because Shakespeare is brilliant in English. And I know that he's read all around the world in translation, but somehow it gets, you know, as the phrase goes lost in translation, if you're reading it in another language, you can get the meaning of it. But the little nuances, the little twists and turns that make that writer, you know, who they are and give them their specific voice really comes across better in that original language. So I started to get kind of obsessed. And that was probably when I was about 25 with the idea of like picking up as much as I could in language so that I could Unlock that that would be the key to unlocking, you know, the mastery of these these writers um, in their native language. And again, I mean, it's it's a I won't I won't claim to any great proficiency in any of the languages, you know, um, but I think that I've got it to the point where I can appreciate it. You know, even uh, I'm now reading. Uh, what's the other work Um Love in the Time of Cholera? by uh, Garcia Marquez uh, in, in Spanish, too. And again, I'm starting to get more of those nuances. And I think that that, I mean, I can't recommend it for everybody, but I think anybody who does, you know, is bilingual or multilingual, they'll say there's a reason why these people are doing it. I mean, it's like you know coltrane was probably a better piano player than i am you know just but i mean you want to listen to him on, on sax cuz that's what he does right. you know what i'm saying right absolutely um, so yeah to mix to mix the analogy of music and literature you know it's yeah. it's art and i think that's what it is
0: absolutely yeah and continuing with the music and literature um i listen to the various small fires album man um heaven oh yeah that 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 might be I think it's my favorite song on the album. Um I like um I like Gravity as well. Thank you. You know, when I get married again, I want to dance. <laughs> just, you got to you got to play that. I'll play that. <laughs> I'll be there at my wedding. So, you begin heaven with saying, "Sometimes when I close my eyes, I feel the Lord isn't there anymore. Searching out of the sea for the shells that will show on the shore." and then the last line you say i keep losing track of all your secrets like what inspires lyrics like that
1: well that's the weird thing um the i remember when i wrote that the the morning like i remember i was i was laying in bed and i just thought literally you know if i when my eyes are closed the room isn't there it was like one of those weird half thoughts that you that linger from sleep or whatever you were thinking about and then um i kind of that was the germ around which everything else was kind of uh generated and then you know i kind of continued to pepper throughout that day you know little lines that occurred to me or or thoughts and i remember that other line about um like uh something what is it like searching the heart of the sea from the shore the shells that wash up on the shore i remember um i think it was isaac newton who said you know in the early days of science he said that he was trying he was trying to figure out the secrets of the universe but he felt like a man standing on the edge of the sea picking up seashells and trying to figure out Mm -hmm. what was in the ocean uh and and i i thought that that was a really brilliant line um and a a humble that sort of humble perspective that i no matter what i try to do i'm not going to have all the answers to everything and i think that that kind of leads into that third line that you brought up about the secrets that you know no matter what happens in the world, you're never going to plumb the secrets of everything you want to know, right. of, of what's out in the world, of, of what's in the hearts of other people. So yeah. we're kind of bound by that, you know, uh, to, to work off a limited knowledge and, and do our best, you know? Yes, yes.
0: Absolutely. But
1: uh, yeah, I, I do. That. Thank you. I I, I actually I, I'm pleased with that song. That's one yeah. that's one I wrote that I thought, you know, that I it was as close to realizing, you know, as an artist in any creative endeavor, there's a, uh, a there's a target you think you're trying to hit. Right. And, you know, I think any, any artist, any creator always feels like, oh, you know, you're a little bit off. It wasn't quite what you were trying to do. Right. But that's one where I feel I got as close as I'm going to get to what I was trying to say. Yes, at the time, yes, you know?
0: absolutely, absolutely. So in the second verse, I think, it, listen, man, it, <laughs> I replayed this a few times. She said that it's gotten so bad we don't get out of the house anymore. You said, "I tell her that's what the windows are for." Yeah. <laughs> Sigh. If you like, cry if you need to, honey. But I don't think that any of this is funny. All of this is funny. Yeah, yeah. Man, I'm I, man. Listen, I'm thinking back to your class, and I'm hearing the music, and I'm hearing what you're saying, and that that hit me in a way where I felt that now you were speaking more to like uh, uh, relationships in yeah. a sense. And just how I think initially in a relationship, we, it feels utopic in a sense and time passes and then you see, no, nah, this, this is a heaven. Yeah. <laughs> you get what I'm oh, saying? Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> and it's definitely, I mean, it came from kind of a dark place. You know, I mean, I don't want to say that any song you write is 100% autobiographical, but I think that on a certain sense, if you write a song... um you have to have felt something like that at some point. And I think that the character in that song is, you know, definitely going through some things. And like I said, I've I've been through, you know, I I used things in my life as an inspiration for, you know, writing that piece. But um, I think at that point, that character is kind of like really dark and closed off and, you know, whoever that other person is, you know, seems to be somebody in a relationship with them is almost trying to pull them out and say, hey, let's go do something. And his response is really dark, very cut off, very, you know, we don't go outside anymore. Yeah, that's why we have windows. You know, just (laughs) like a real, you know, snide, curt response of like, I guess, you know, Sometimes when you get in a depressive funk, like, you don't even want to get out of it. You sort of mire yourself in it. And, yeah. Uh, I think at least at that point. And, again, I'm not advocating for that, but I'm saying that that's a thing that we feel sometimes, right, you know. Right, right. Absolutely. Um, and then, you know, the, uh, I, was, I was actually thinking about that song the other day because I just, I just got back from Florida. Um, and, you know, when you fly in an airplane— uh, you, you get above the clouds. And I was actually thinking about that when I was thinking about that last line about, you know, above all the clouds, the day is still sunny, that like, you know, you're on the ground and it's a gray and depressing day and you, you break through the clouds and you're like, wow, yeah, it's clear yeah. up here, <laughs> you know? Um, right. But yeah, that that overall, I think that, that that piece, you know, was as close as I said to being fully realized that by the time I finished it, I thought, okay, there's a complete thought here, right. you know, on some level. And, and of course, I think it's important uh, again, I, that's odd that I, I was just having a conversation with a friend yesterday almost about this, saying that, you know, I had written some songs recently and, and played them, and I said I would played them for people, but I'm never really sure what other people are getting out of them. Mm-hmm. You know, I know it was in my head at the moment when I wrote it and what it corresponded to, but I never really know how it hits, you know, right. another human being when they listen to it. You know, we tend to apply it to our lives or our situations, and I think that's, mm-hmm. that's again, the purpose of art. It's, you know, if you could ask... There's something called the intentionalist fallacy in literature where, you know, even if you could go to the author of a book and say, what did you mean by this? You know, once an author creates something, their interpretation is just one interpretation amongst many. There's no real right answer that anybody who's reading it has basically the same right to interpret something and it's as authentic as Uh, You know, I guess once the author's created something that they just become another interpreter and when they say oh This is what it meant to me. It's not authoritative It's as somebody said you can't just consult the Oracle and say what did you mean because it's out there (laughs) and it's everybody's now
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I I definitely I definitely follow what you're saying and I think that um, I think the art relates to somebody else uh, through I guess the purview of what what their experiences and what they've gone through as well, even the most intimate and you know autobiographical autobiograph- uh, uh, work, I think we we read that, but we still we still interpret it through through our experiences, and that's that's the beautiful thing. Um, going back to like to like Coltrane, um, you know, Love Supreme. I think just the intersection of the art and the science, and it was spiritual. Like, have you read the the insert of? I have the record. Oh, yeah, I have the record, man. Yeah, I started getting vinyls. I started See, getting that, that's, vinyls. Yeah,
1: no, I don't have the vinyl. I haven't read the, the liner notes on that. So, yeah,
0: so he has a, a poem and like a prayer. And it, it brings me back to when I used to skip school to buy CDs at Best Buy or whatever. Like, your class is the only class I never skipped. Okay, good, good. You You're not that. just saying that, right? Yeah, now. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to let you know that. Um, But I would read, you know, the inserts before I listen to the album and then it would it would, you know, lend itself to the album in a in a spiritual way. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. Like you digest it in a spiritual way. And with a love supreme, I think that just hit on every accord. And that's something that like I strive for in my writing. And when I read other literature or when I listen to music, uh that that's what I'm looking for. Like that intersection of the art and and the science. So you're by far one of the most critical thinkers i know thank you and especially with when it comes to literature and everything with art so so speak to that like as as a writer as a musician um what how, how do you strike how do you strike that balance
1: that's that's a really good question as well because um all right so with a piece that i just wrote recently i'll have to play it for you after after us yeah, do that. um you know i played it and I, I threw it down. You know, it was one of those, like, kind of on-the-moment inspirations. I, you know, wrote wrote a lyric quick and then came up with some chords underneath it and played it. And then I played it for my dad, who, as I mentioned, is, you know, somebody who inspired me. And although he's not a musician, he's got a really good ear. And, you know, I grew up, um, you know, when I was a teenager as with a lot of guys, you know, I, I butted heads with my dad a lot, even though, you know, I loved him. But, you know, I was growing up by that point in a single-parent household, and it was just me and my dad and my brother and— you know, like a teenage boy, I was I was bullheaded and I, I had to be right in it, you know, and um, but the one thing that my dad and I could always talk about without fighting, uh, you know, given given my hair and my you know lifestyle choices at the time. <laughs> but like uh, the thing that we wouldn't fight about was music. We could sit down and listen to. Uh, especially like 1960s British invasion kind of music the Beatles things like that that we could you know talk about the musical styles and stuff like that and so that became a big inspiration for me and uh, as I said he's not a musician um, although he's really deeply into like classical music as well raised me you know I, I was afraid to let him know that I was listening to rock and roll when I was like 12 because <laughs> I thought like I had to listen to classical because that was you know his thing. But he's, as I said, he's got a really developed ear. And, you know, so I took him this song and I played it for him. And he was like, was like, yeah, it's good. You know, it's, uh, uh, the lyric's fine. But, it, you know, it just doesn't seem musically to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I, I, at first I was kind of, you know, because anytime you show something somebody and they're like, well, you know, it's not really, a, at first you get kind of butthurt. You know, yeah, like, yeah, well, yeah. I mean it wasn't good? But then I thought about what he was saying. And I thought, yeah, you know, I, I need a little bit more movement. I need to develop it. So it inspired me to go back you know, add a middle eight section to it, um, you know, at the end, and as this is coming around to answering the science of it, starting to draw back on the musical knowledge that I have, you know, about, okay, the chords were straightforward, so what if, you know, to add something at the end, we start, you know, leaning on some suspended chords and some sixth chords to kind of increase the the color palette of the song as the, as the you know, as it moves through different parts of the song so that right. you feel some sort of development. And at the end I feel, you know, I did that. And again, that, that goes back to, you know, when you first start playing an instrument or getting into music, it can be, you know, I look at like the earliest stuff that I wrote when I was, you know, 14 years old or something, right. started right. playing guitar, and it's all pretty kind of straightforward. And then you start to learn things. You you pick up, you, you pick up something for that you learn from you know listening to classical or jazz you start to learn new chords and you start to introduce those into your palette and you start to understand the structure i mean why things work together i think any natural there's a natural amount of talent that anybody who's going to you know work in an endeavor has you know if you're an athlete you probably naturally before you even really start getting into intense training, you're probably pretty coordinated. You probably have some stamina body wise, you know, as a musician, I think, you know, if you're drawn to it, it's probably you're paying attention to it. You already kind of have an innate understanding of things that sound good together, but you start to develop, I think, to mature as a musician or as an artist in in the writing field, you start to take an interest in why things work the way they do, why, you know, certain chords, certain sounds work together, how you can structure them. You know, and the same thing I think applies to language. You start to study, you know, the meter, not just, oh, I know this sounds good, but you get into studying meter and why does this sound good? Um, And I think with any, that's where the science comes in for me. You start to get deeper into into it, um, not just to nerd out and not just to, you know, be one of those people who's like, well, you know, when you go that diminished, you know, Um, (laughs) but to be somebody who understands why it hangs together because it's something that you deeply love and you want to pursue and you want to mature in.
0: Absolutely, so I have a, I have a bit of a personal question because, and I'll explain, um, you know, I, I'm a single father, you know, and I'm raising my kids. Um, what was it like growing up? Because we, we don't speak about that often. You right. know, you often hear about my mom raising me alone, yeah. but your father ra- raised you and your brother alone? Yes, yep. And how was
1: that? Um, well, it was, I mean, my mom, my mom left the picture at, like, uh, when I was 14 and my brother was 11. So, I mean, it's not like we were tiny coming mm-hmm. up. But it was, you know, it was something. And and I feel it, too, like like you said, because the the narrative. And, you know, I have mad respect for all the women who are out there, Absolutely. you know, raising their kids. I'm not trying to take away from that at all. But you're right that, like, the single fathers, you know, you don't hear about that as much. Right. And it, it's a different experience, I think. Um, and it it, it was... There were difficulties, you know, I mean, insofar as, again, being a teenage boy and there's that natural rebellion that comes in and, you know, dad's the authority figure. In fact, now dad is the only authority figure. So it right. left, as I said, some we had to I guess we had to carve out spaces like that's what the music was about, that we carved yes. out spaces where it's like this is, you know, we're, we're, we might butt heads on other things, but this is something that we can, you know, have time to do. My mm. brother for my brother, I think it was more sports that he was more sports oriented. Right. So to this day, like we get together and you know, my dad and I might talk about, you know, music and this thing and that and then, you know, he'll I mean tomorrow's the fourth of July. We're gonna be together. Might I know that I know the dynamic. There'll be the, you know, Dad and I will talk about music and, and right. things like that and movies, and then he'll talk with Joe about, you know, the brewers and statistics. Right. and you know so But, again, I think that's something that, you know, um, as a single father that he learned to do to carve that out and say, okay, this is the time, you know, and how mm-hmm. I'm going to develop a dynamic where conflict it doesn't have to come into it and, yeah. and I don't have to be the authority figure at all times. Because, I mean, he was an authority figure, and he was um, – <laughs> Just, just to give you an idea of my dad, like I remember when I graduated high school and my friend Dan came over and he's like, so I graduated, I can call you Dennis now, right? And he's like, no. <laughs> but, you know, so I mean yeah. he was he was still going to be that authority figure and, and I needed that for sure because um, I, I was one of those kids who was going to push the boundaries if I could. But, again, you know, I think there was a wisdom in, in you know, him doing that and saying, I'm going to find the, this these spaces that we can have. They're shared spaces. You Absolutely. Know, and we can just, you know be guys talking about things, yeah. you know, you know,
0: I'll tell you on a personal level that that helps me a lot because I, I think that, um, um, as men, sometimes as single fathers, um, or father in general, yeah, I think oftentimes we might not be as in tune with the emotional needs of our children. It sounds right. like how he carved out that emotional connection, that emotional time was through music. And, and books yeah, with you yeah. and with uh, sports with your brother. And I'm I'm starting to implement that now with my children. Like, in the morning, um, my son, you know, he he like to grab the controller and uh-huh. put on TV. I'm like, no, we're not watching TV. And that was, like, for a good week. Um, but he'll see me on the couch reading, you know. Yeah. So slowly but surely, my oldest, you know, when she wake up in the morning, she'll grab a book, come sit near me then the middle one. You know, and now junior finally yeah yeah he's not reaching for that controller he he he's grabbing a book, um so I want to start to just I guess start those good traditions yeah right and be able to connect with my because like I said it's just sometimes when I don't I don't I don't want to say I don't know how to connect with them emotionally but I'll say that I'm so wrapped up in trying to provide.
1: Right, right. You trying, know, to grind,
0: trying to be the dad, yeah. Right, and then when, when I'm focused on just father, it's more so disciplinary, things right. like that. So, no, that that definitely helped me a lot, and even more so, I think for me personally, uh, uh, coming up, coming of age, um, literature and music did was that safe space. Yeah, you know. So when I got to Hamilton, um, because I already had that that foundation. Like, you know, my mom was giving me poetry at a young age, Langston Hughes and Harlem Renaissance. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, Harden, things like that. So when I came into your class, that, that, right away, I was hooked. Then you said you like the chronic. So I'm like, all right, you got me. <laughs> so, right. That was the bow. That, that was, the, bowl. That was yeah. the ribbon on it. <laughs> you got me. And really, that, that, that class um, was like a, a demilitarized zone for me, <laughs> in a way. You get what I'm saying? And it sounds like that 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 art was the same for you at coming up and then i think you you carry that over into being a teacher subconsciously or not because i i felt that as your student
1: well that's good yeah and i you know that's i don't know how much of it like you know you that i did on purpose by design and how much was just like you said subconsciously like this is the way i was raised so i tried to kind of bring that over you know um well, now I'm definitely going to be thinking about it now that you pointed it out that way. But, yeah, I mean, I, mean, I think there's definitely a connection that I I suppose that I did. If that, you know, growing up and that was a safe space and, like, trying to provide that for students to yeah. carry over. Because, obviously, you're going to draw on everything. I mean, be it art or be it what you do for a living, you're drawing on your experiences and what worked for you. Right. Uh, and at the point, I guess, when you come up against the wall where you're saying, oh, this isn't working for this person or this isn't connecting in this way, then then you got to kind of retool. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I think that. I Think that's a an astute observation from the, the student perspective.
0: Yeah, I mean I came into your class, man, a gangbanger. <laughs> but the thing is, is that I I had um I had a dictionary in my pocket. I had a small dictionary in my pocket. So I was always in love with words, man, and being in your class, it was like, all right, I don't because I'll be honest with you. Um as 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 black men, we we grew up um And we feel the pressure to project like a hard exterior. Right. You know, and I won't say that I personally did it from a disingenuous uh, place, but it's, it's, it's what you know in that type of environment. And I don't want to blow that out of proportion. Right. No. In a reckless environment. Like my mom loved me. My dad loved me. I have a dope ass family. Yeah. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? But that's just kind of the pressure as, as, as black men. And, um, being in that class, like I would show the bandana in my pocket. I wouldn't show the dictionary. You know, in that class uh-huh. I was able to put that dictionary on the table. You yeah. Know? Right. Like, you would say some words and I fire something back at you. Yeah, yeah. And that's <laughs> you it. Know what I'm
1: saying. And, and another th- important thing I mean you kinda of brought up brought it up a little bit earlier with saying that your mom was out there, you know, give, giving you saying, hey, this is something you should read. So you come in with the perspective, even again Social pressures aside, deep down inside, you saw yourself as a reader. You saw yourself as yes. somebody who was literate and wanted to. And again, that that I relate to that uh, because, like I said, growing up watching my parents, as you're doing now with your kids, reading all the time. You know, it, you I w- I wanted to emulate that. I wanted yes. to read all, every book on that shelf. You know, right. and so I, I knew what it was, and that that became you know, see perceiving yourself as a reader, perceiving yourself as somebody who aspires to be literate. You know that's that's half the battle right there. If you take you know if you put a kid in my room who already is curious about it, you know they're going to thrive.
0: Right, absolutely. So and that that kind of segues segues into what I wanted to get into. You're, you're boots on the ground. You're in NPS. You're a teacher. Um, what what do you think about the state of NPS right now? Because I, I think that it, there's some struggles, and the narrative that narrative is being pushed. I think. When stuff like that happens it begins to get a bit overblown and people like the news doesn't get into the nuances right. of education like they might see hamilton as a whole as okay the school is failing but they don't look in your class and that's what i'm saying like hamilton when i was there hamilton as a whole might have been failing but in your class i excel in specific classes and you know uh, uh mr garrison that class i excel so making it more general uh uh NPS as a whole, what do you think of, of the state?
1: Oh, that's, that's, that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? Yes, I, it is. It's, I'm going to start off, and I'm going to sound like I'm dancing around the question, but hopefully I'll, I'll turn it around and get to a, an answer. But, I mean, it's a, it's a complicated issue because there are success stories going on in NPS, and then there are, you know, there are... Those issues, you know, the difficulties, the the failing schools, things like that, that people put on there. Um, I and I, I agree that I think the news, you know, when when you hear it, most of the coverage seems to be about bad because you know nobody. And I I understand that's kind of the game because in news you don't report like everything is fine today. You right, know?
0: Right. <laughs> uh,
1: it's it's not what they're looking for. It doesn't sell copy. It doesn't get people to click on it. You know. Um, so that's part of the nature of the beast is they can't write articles every day saying you know everything is going fine there are no problems. <laughs> uh and it's it's not entirely true. I think that I think there are systemic things in MPS that are difficult like I think that there are generally I was just at a conference I hope I don't get in trouble for this. Uh that they were dividing the schools into three levels. There was the Tier 1 schools, the Tier 2 schools, and the Tier 3 schools. And the Tier 3 schools were the ones that are, you know, on the failing list, are in danger of whatever is going to happen if the state comes in, if they're going to reconstitute the school, if they're going to knock out the leadership and put somebody else in there. And I was on like a data retreat, you know, looking at the data from all the Tier 3 schools. And I had said to—so I don't think I'm going to get in trouble for this because I said this to the people who were there. And I was like, it doesn't make sense to me that, you know, you had your Tier 1 retreat last week or whatever. And then, you know, later you had a Tier 2 retreat. Now you have a Tier 3 retreat. And why, if everybody in this room is at a school that's on Tier 3 and is failing, why are we scrambling through our own data, talking to each other? Why aren't we talking to the Tier 1 schools, the Mm -hmm. ones that are doing the best, and they can tell us what are they doing at their schools that we could replicate that model on our level. And I think that that's, you know, something that I, if I were calling the shots, I would say that. If if Reagan is doing that well, then let's have Reagan come and sort of workshop us and say, here's what we do. This is what works for us. This is why we seem to be thriving and, and, you know, learn from that way. Um, So I think that's one of the ideas is I don't necessarily think that, you know, if, if you got a room full of people who are all struggling with the same issues, mm-hmm. I do think, I mean, I see on some level the logic of, okay, you guys can work it out, but I think that with anything, you know, you want to model what works best, and I think that that would be one step, because I'd like to know what is happening at those schools right. that, is, that is working so well. And if it really is, and here's the more dangerous, you know, thing, if it really is something going on if they're really if the tier one schools are really if they're getting more attention if if mps is putting more effort into those schools which i don't want to say is what's going on but if if that were it you know we can't just replicate it because if there's you know literally a different tiered system then that would be a different issue that would have to be addressed because i think we have to you know give attention to all the schools and i I think that the leadership is is trying to do that i just think that it would be best if we could you know Right. take the best practices from the, the top schools and see what we can do about implementing them. Because yeah. uh, as you said, there are a lot of things that are working. Hamilton, you know, if you're in the right classrooms with the right teachers, you can get a really good education. You can get places in life. Absolutely. Um, but the question is, how do we make that more universal? And how do we help those classrooms that are struggling get up to where they need to be? How do we get those students who are struggling where they need to be?
0: You know. Absolutely. And see, I... I um I have a book club, you know, with uh, my mentor, O.G. Chris, that's Chris Terry, and um, and we we're reading The Miseducation of the Negro, and it talks about, you know, the school system, and I, I was thinking about that because I think sometimes it's characterized that leadership is corrupt or incompetent in a way. I don't believe that. I don't believe that to be overwhelmingly mm-hmm. true. In a sense, I think that when you're something as as just massive as NPS, that's a that's a monolith, it you is. know. And my OG Chris, he, he has a, a a metaphor where it's like it's hard to do a U-turn in a, in an airplane, right? And I and I would. Do you think that's a safe character? Uh, a correct characterization. Yeah, I do. I mean,
1: it's it's such a large institution. I think that sometimes when you're looking at, you know, something like MPS with so many people involved in it, so many moving parts... It's difficult to steer. I mean, if you got you look at some of these school districts that are out in you know way out in the suburbs, and they have three schools, and it's like that <laughs> is a you know I mean you can it's it's a unit you could get yeah. everything going on. You know, probably the entire district is roughly the size of Hamilton. You right. know what I mean? Um, and that's that's an easy thing to turn on a dime and say we're going in a new direction, we're doing this. But if you get something as as you said as big as MPS, it's monolithic. It's difficult to move. It's going to, you know, if you start moving in another direction, things will start, you know, like I'm picturing like, you know, you said an airplane. I'm thinking like, you know, an oil tanker. You just can't turn that thing around. It doesn't just stop. Absolutely.
0: Right. So, I mean, what do you think is, I I guess, on on, on a more uh, individual level, you know, because, you know, I would love – to be able to to change NPS myself, I would love if me and you and my mom or whoever else, just a group of people, we can change NPS. That that might not be as realistic or feasible at this point in time. So on an individual level, what do you think that that parents, I have younger children, um, need to need to institute in our children from a young age to have success uh, in in NPS that you know might not. You know, have all of the nuances, all of the best things to uh, for 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 a student to have success. But in itself, that is the institution. You get yeah. what I'm saying? Like yes. you can't change the institution. What what do we need to do on a practical level? Let me be clear. What do we need to do on a practical level as as individuals, as parents, as older students, to ensure our success with all of the the, the failures of MPS notwithstanding,
1: right. Well, and that's that's, I think, and I again, I do have an answer for this. I'm just winding up to it, but I think that I think you and I talking, you know, plumbing into our pasts, you know, the the a commonality that we had there was growing up in a household where reading education was valued, yeah. and I think that's the main thing because if you take a kid who comes in with an, you know, they see the intrinsic value of education. They grew up with that. It doesn't really matter. I mean, I don't want to say that we don't want to have good schools, but I'm saying that kid is going to thrive and going to try in an environment regardless of the school. You can you can take that kid because because that kid already sees him or herself as a learner, and they're going to do it. And, again, you know, it still helps to have good classrooms. It still helps to have good teachers. It helps to have those materials. Um but, you know, you, you read about, like, other places in the world where kids are, you know, they have one textbook for, you know, 10 kids, and they're splitting it off and sharing it. And, and you know, I, there but for the grace of God go we, right? We don't want that to be the, the case in American schools. But those kids perceive themselves as learners. And I think as parents, that's our, that's our role. I mean, again, your mom did it with you. My dad did it with me. And as I said, when my mom was there, she was a reader, too. So I grew up seeing that and being it was something I wanted to emulate right. and I think all of my most successful students and regardless of that's the one commonality I see in their backgrounds is that they see themselves as as a reader as a writer and and I also want to say like I like I said I, I mentioned my grandma you know coming up at My grandma was, you know, grew up in a farm and then they moved to the city not far from here and lived, this used to be the old Polish neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they grew up in this area. And then, you know, my grandpa was a factory worker and, you know, went in World War II and stuff like that. And it was all, um, you know, where am I going with this? It, it, It developed over time. But again, you know, I wanted to, that's where I was going with this, that when I grew up, like Shakespeare was really not part of my cultural inheritance in so far as any real way. You know what I mean? Like I didn't, most of the authors I grew up, um, you know, the, when you go back to my family history, you know, we're, we were, you know, working class people. Right. But it was the idea of being raised with the perception of being a reader and a learner that I wanted to get that stuff. I wanted to read, you know, and I keep throwing out Shakespeare, but like you mentioned, Langston Hughes, mm-hmm. the, the great writers of the Harlem Renaissance. The you know as, as a learner you you say I'm gonna make all of this part of my background and I think as parents if we raise our children to want to be lifelong learners when they go to those schools that's already setting them up for success.
0: No, I, yeah, I definitely agree, man. I think you you explained that perfectly. You know because it, it's true um, from from a I guess from an educational standpoint and just being curious. Like my mother and my father, they. They instilled that in me at a young age. So, although you know I got distracted when it was something that I knew and I felt at home with, such as your class, you know right away it's like I'm I'm focused. Like I might I might skip other classes, right, right. I'm not skipping this one. And I think even uh, um, as as a foundation, my my dad and my mom they 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 raised me in a sense of natural natural consequences like I didn't get a lot of whoopings especially as I got older because they realized I was smart enough to 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 make the right decision you get what I'm saying yeah look at look at the facts and make the right decision so um I think that when we when we raise our kids to be students it's like regardless of the environment get what you need to get you know, be kind of entrepreneurial in a sense where it's like, I'm I'm getting this information to apply it so I can have a better life, you know. Yeah. Um, I think that's that's that might be what, what we can do from an individual level. Um, because it's hard to to change something as mass as, 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 as MP, yes, yeah. and and
1: that's the thing. And I again, that that's a great point about you know the sort of like the entrepreneurial mindset for right. over education yeah. is you know instilling that. So on the one hand, let's say there's two ingredients to this: there's the one of like you know creating an environment where where you know your children are driven to this, and then getting them to see, you know, uh, as you put it, the entrepreneurial thing. Because now it cued me back into when I was a kid, and I remember. I was in a class and I thought the teacher wasn't, you know, I wasn't doing very well. And, of course, I put it on the teacher. And my dad's response was, you know, okay, so you think he isn't a good teacher? I said, yeah. I said, well, then you're going to have to, you know, work twice as hard to learn. Yeah. And that, you know, I, I like that answer because it was eventually, you know, it was coming around to that, that sort of entrepreneurial perspective. Like, you know, figure it out. This Absolutely. is your job. you got to figure out how to make this work. You, Absolutely. Know, you can't put it on other people. You know, you can't if you're running a business, you can't say, well, I can't open in this area. You know, it's like figure it out. Yeah. (laughs) Figure out how to make this work.
0: That's absolutely correct, man. It's absolutely correct. I think that. um, I think it's about taking taking command, you know, just just all over your life, man, be it education, be it entrepreneurship, be it, you know, your creativity, take ownership of it. And you gotta you gotta do the work. And what inspires me about you is the fact, like I said, you're a math scientist, man. You're a math. I really want to know how do you have the time, you know, to read something in Spanish. I don't sleep. No. <laughs> Does that again? Because now, now I'm I'm asking from the standpoint of of, of a student, man, and not just in English, but in life, you know, you're a father, you have a beautiful family. Thank you. How do you maintain, how do you maintain that balance?
1: It is hard at times. And it's not always, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to admit to a certain level of truth on this and say, like, sometimes I don't maintain the balance, you know, and, and I find myself, um to steal a phrase of uh, Stephen Jay Gold talking about punctuated equilibrium. Like I'll go along and everything will be kind of fine. And then sometimes it's. Quite honestly, through moments of crises that you know I have to find my a new footing, establish a new normal um so it's it for me it's not always smooth sailing you know there have been definitely times in my life where I've gone through some things where things have happened there's been an upheaval, and I have to kind of find my ground again um, and as long as I can find my ground, which thus far historically I have been able to find <laughs> it again uh, you know things have been things have been good afterwards, but you know I think for the most part um that I, I do try to carve out, as I said, time for certain things, or, you know, I I just decide I'm gonna make an effort, but I do have, you know, um, uh, sometimes it becomes a driven by crisis mode, mm-hmm. and then, you know, I have to quickly figure out what's happening and what the landscape is. Right. And, and I think that there's probably a lot of people who can relate to that, you know, things things go along at a certain pace and you get used to them, and then, you know, there's there's something that happens that forces you to kind of reconsider things and then you find a way to move on and you know and again that happens in life it happens you know uh over and over again in everybody's life I think everybody goes through something like that from time to time
0: absolutely so I, I always like to ask people um and as the last question because I don't want to take up too much of your oh. time <laughs> um this is called one corner at a time yeah. you know and um I like to always explain you know um, my sister Aquila I asked her when she's going to change the world because she's one of the profound thinkers and just humans that I know. And she says one corner at a time. And I like to have people on that, that I I feel are very profound, very critical thinkers that can actually change the world one corner at a time. So I like to ask you, um, I think you've actually already identified your corner. You're a teacher.
1: Yeah. That's, you
0: know, but you also inspire through your music. You also inspire, you know, through, through literature. So, what has your impact been so far, I, you know, and what what do you want it to be going forward, um, for, for the community, you know, for every student that comes into your class?
1: Well, I mean, I think, you know, sitting here across from you, this is one, that's one of my answers right there is, you know, I get to watch the way I test how well I'm doing is when I run into, you know, it's not... The, I mean, I want the kids sitting in front of me to be happy and learning, but on the other hand, I always realize that I'm not just teaching you as a 16, 17, 18-year-old sitting in front of me today. Right. I have to be accountable to that person who I'm going to be sitting across from 5, 10, 15 years from now. And, you know, hopefully, as, you, as you've said to me, I, I made an impact on you, a positive impact in your Absolutely. life. And, and those are the corners that I'm looking to to round each time that um, you know, if I talk to a kid who it's, it's all fine and good and it's all very, you know, flattering when kids like me as, you know, oh, he's a cool teacher when they're, you know, 16. But when I run into them and they're 26, I, I want to get an answer that, you know, I, I inspired them. I helped them that they use something from my class or something that I, you know, said Absolutely. to them outside of class. And that would be the, the biggest way to measure. I think teaching, there are certain things that you do in life, certain jobs where you get immediate feedback or certain tasks. You know, you know, you did a good job when, you know, the quarterly thing goes up on your report and business, you know, and you're making right. more money. Okay, fine. You know, or, you know, you won the game or whatever it is, or you sold X amount of tickets and you get this sort of immediate feedback of this is what success looks like in this field. I think teaching and parenting are two, you know, aspects where you can't really see the payoff until, Years later, in some cases, I mean, sometimes it's immediate and you get that kid who's getting the grades and doing this. But there are other times when, you know, uh, and I'll be the first to admit from, you know, my perspective in high school, like I was not a spectacular student. I got a lot of, you know, you're smart, but you're not trying kind of stuff. And, And I when I have run into former teachers, I like to say, hey, here's what I'm doing now. And I want to thank you. You know, there's one teacher, uh, I'll I'll give him a shout out now, Mr. Kuhn, who uh, had me removed from my accelerated chemistry class because, you know, I wasn't keeping up. I wasn't getting the work in. I was falling behind. And I I pointed out to him, you know, I said, hey, my grade in this class is higher than my lab partner's grade. And he looked at me and said, yeah, but he's trying. Mm. And years later, I ran into him at Summerfest and I said, you know, I got to talk to you. I said, you know, you kicked me out of class. And, you know, at first I think he thought I was going to challenge him or say something. <coughs> I said, I want to thank you because that you taught me a valuable lesson yeah. about effort. And those are the kinds of things that I'm sure when, you know, when I was 16 and he was saying you don't belong in this class, you know, I was mad. And he, prob- he might have thought like, OK, it's another knucklehead kid who's not, you know. But I wanted to give him that feedback because, as I said, teaching, parenting, you don't get to see the payoff until years later. So there I was as, you know, a 24, 25-year-old guy saying that was a valuable lesson. If you had kept me in that class and allowed me to just slack off, I wouldn't have learned anything about chemistry or about life. But because you said, you know, if you don't give me your best effort, then I don't want you in here, that made me examine myself. Maybe not that day because I was mad. All but right. <laughs> later on, I thought, yeah, you know, he was right.
0: Absolutely. Oh, man, else. Yeah, man. That was profound, man. That was profound for sure. And I'll definitely tell you, man, um, you've had a substantial impact on my life, man. Um, Not just creatively, but just as a father, as a man. Absolutely. You know, I watched you from afar and then- being able to still maintain contact with you, man, it's it's been a blessing in my life. I wouldn't have put out that book, you know, if you didn't say, "Hey, this is worth putting yeah, out." Yeah, it would have stayed on my laptop, you know. So I'm, man, I'm glad
1: I'm glad you consulted me because it, <laughs> it needed. I think it needed to be out there. I think it's something that you know many people who are going through things who want to, and if they're not going through it, it's just people want to understand, you know to me, the goal of reading is to, you know, I'm I'm stuck in this body. I'm stuck in this life. I can only experience this life and the different twists and turns it it takes, but I can only go through it as me. Mm -hmm. I think in literature, it's the one opportunity where you can at least see what it's like to steer through this life, through another set of eyes, in another skin, in another person's experience. And it's the closest you can never actually be somebody else, you know, but it's the closest you can get. And I think that Literature has the potential to actually make you a better person. When I say literature, I mean the big picture. I should say arts in general, that, you know, be it literature, be it music, be it, uh, you know, even painting or or, uh, acting, it it allows you to see another perspective of life. And I think that that has the potential to broaden your horizons, to make you feel more empathetic with other people. And, you know, ultimately, I I think it can make you a better person if you allow it, you know.
0: Absolutely. Amen. I
1: enjoyed this, man. So did I. I. I gotta admit, when I I was I was like, this is a cold interview. Like I don't know. I mean, I know you, but I'm like, I don't know what this is. What we're gonna talk about? What we're right. gonna, um, you know? But I, it, yeah, I think that uh, I felt by the by, once we got a couple minutes in, I'm like, yeah, this is. <laughs> it's like it's like two two old friends talking, which Absolutely, it is,
0: Absolutely, man. Absolutely, man. Listen, it's been a pleasure. Got to have you on again. Well, thank you. Thank you. busy, man. Got to have you on again, man. Thank you for just the education started when I was 17 and still continuing now, man. For real. Thank you for your work in the community.
1: Thank you. you know, it's been a pleasure to serve.
0: Yeah, absolutely, man. One quarter at a time with Pitch, Mr. Pujo. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you all for tuning in. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and share it with a friend. Follow us on Instagram at One Corner at a Time. Shout out to JT. I finally took your advice and got some theme music. Shout out to my brother Ron for producing it. One Corner at a Time.